only seconds ago braced yourself mentally that you know you're about to die you've accepted that Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Clean, right? you're, you're going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and screen. they felt the trouble. Like she did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. H is a former senior special forces soldier with a protected identity. This is the second part of my conversation with the 2nd Commando Regiment veteran, Make sure you've already listened to Volume 1 before continuing with this episode. H's story picks up with his first deployment to the Middle East, 2006, Afghanistan. So H, you've had a decade and a half in the military by this point. Your special forces, you have been training to be creme de la creme at absolute peak for years. You've proven yourself in overseas theatres such as Timor, and you've proven yourself at home in things like the Commonwealth Games. And after, as we discussed before, back in your classroom, hiding under the desk using your ruler and playing soldier on that playground, you can now go overseas and play in the ultimate playground of the Middle East. Do you remember when you first landed in Afghanistan? Yeah, I do, quite clearly. And you know, you've given an excellent lead in there, Alex. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm not going to hide it. I was very excited. You wouldn't have seen that by my body language, but I was, you know, nothing short of very excited for every reason that you've just mentioned. We knew this was it, as in this was going to be big and this was going to be combat, combat in the true sense of every word and special operations, importantly, in the true sense of every word. And those earlier trips very much led into a, a faster maturity of the unit's um, skills, knowledge and attitudes and it accelerated everything in development of equipment, in development of our tactics, techniques and procedures. I was very excited, mate. This is the short answer. I'm sure. Now, I'll just flag for listeners before we continue that for a mix of operational security and diplomatic reasons, we'll acknowledge sort of roughly your timeline of events, but we're not going to get always into operational specifics or mission objectives. We're going to more focus on your experiences on the ground because of this high profile environment you're working in. So let's start with some of your early experiences in 2006 in Afghanistan. We talked about some of those first skirmishes in Somalia and some of those first very slow sneaking up patrols in Timor. Can we talk about some of your first more full-on contacts with the commandos? I'll skip through the first bit a little bit, not to take anything away with it. The way it all ended up falling out was myself and the then platoon commander of the commandos we essentially, in the first few weeks after only a couple of patrols, where there were no real significant events or nothing I'd consider significant now, were basically uh, our actions and timeline after a particular event was questioned in a formal way by the force element commander, who was a major from SASR. The result of this had me reassigned initially in a not in a good light and basically that commander didn't believe what myself and the commando commander, which I refer to as JT, 
he didn't believe our story. Essentially, there was a big gap in the timeline because a few things happened uh, when we were outside the wire, all of which we explained. And categorically, categorically, what we explained was 100% correct and right and factual. Uh, he didn't believe that. So to skip forward from there, that had me sent down to a Special Operations Element Command in uh, Kandahar where I was basically awaiting further orders or assignment from the commander, uh, who was Mark Smithhurst. And they were at that stage based in uh, Bagram. So to move forward now to your question, after being there a short amount of time, I was directed to come to Bagram and be uh, reassigned. And I was extremely frustrated at the time, but I had a lot of trust in Mark Smithhurst and they told me not to worry. They had a very good assignment for me. So uh, I flew down to Bagram, and uh, upon arriving at Bagram, I was told that I was going to be put inside what's called, or has numerous names, but some of them are OCF, being other coalition forces, SMU, Special Mission Unit, the task force, as it's referred to. And what those terms encapsulate is, at that time in that theatre, as they did in Iraq, the JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command of the US, which handles all of the US Tier 1 some tier two assets, which is basically the best of their best. Uh, listeners may have heard of units called Delta Force or CAG or SEAL Team 6, uh, also referred to as Dev Group. All of that information is open source. And they form very, very strategic task forces and ascent into numerous theatres, normally with a very specific objective. So the task force's objective in Afghanistan was to hunt for Osama bin Laden. So to be uh, the first person to go into that task force as an operator from either unit in Afghanistan, that is, was very, very exciting. So you've gone from almost being punished from this other event to um, almost having this honour, this accolade. Yeah, because there was a big disconnect in between the uh, command at Tarrant and the higher command at Bagram and those decisions at Tarrant were made uh, unbeknown to the higher command at Bagram. Otherwise, those decisions wouldn't have been allowed to be made. That's the short of it. I've gone from, you know, you need to move you out of here for the, because, you know, you've got integrity issues, uh, like I said, which categorically was incorrect, to getting this assignment. That's why I was giving this assignment, because they knew there were no issues. All right, H, so tell me about some of these missions with the SMU. I guess there's a uh, period of, you know, settling in, you know, no doubt judgment and for a few other reasons. I was first assigned with the uh, Ranger element that resides within that task force. After a couple of operations with the Ranger Force element, who I hadn't worked with much before prior to this, only on, you know, where they had come across a unit on short exchanges or whatnot, which you don't really get a good grasp of. You know, you get a, you get a bit of an indication. But in short, this changed my opinion of them dramatically. Yes, they still have, you know, more of a um, you know, younger uh, operator in there. But as a group, maybe not so much as some of the young individuals, but as a group assigned to the mission that they were assigned, yeah, they, they were a highly professional uh, outfit and they were, um, it was good to work with them. And probably the biggest thing, once I stepped foot in the task force, biggest realisation with, with the differences on the levels that you're working at was they had everything as in asset-wise and resources like directly force assigned to them. So where the Australian Special Operations Task Group, based out of Tarrant we would, with most assets and most resources, for the majority of the entire conflict we were there, we would have to bid, scramble, negotiate, uh, whatever terms you want to use to get those uh, assets and resources to support you know, the various missions and profiles that we wanted to go on. 
So that was the first biggest thing I, I noticed that, you know, you really were at the top of the food chain in regards to the operational level that you were working at. Basically, I hit the ground running. So I think it was the first or second mission we went out on. There was a, um, as is referred to, a HVI or HVT, high-value individual, high-value target, who was Mr. Baroud Nakani, had uh, popped above the, um, as we call it, the ISR threshold, the Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance Threshold, which basically encapsulates all the things that these units and as a military that we use to uh, gain information. So without going into the detail of all them or breaching any current capabilities or operational security, yeah, that, I'll just use that word, uh, ISR. So um, he hadn't been heard of as in at all for a good few years and had been uh, residing in Pakistan. Yeah, one of the you know, first and, and certainly most exciting missions at that time for me to go on uh, was this mission. And um, it, even for the task force, it put it under a lot of stress because there were some real complexities uh, with this mission. So it was identified where Brood Nakani was going or was likely to be through, as I've described, the ISR. And this was at about 11,500, 12,500 feet, you know, just inside, as in a couple of kilometres inside Afghanistan, uh, up in the mountains. So this presented a lot of problems in regards to the aircraft limits. You know, what you can and cannot carry on an aircraft at height, you know, reduces all of that aircraft's ability to land at height more accurately, severely reduces in regards to the weight. I was put inside the range is, is broken up into a couple of different elements, but there's a, essentially like a recon element within them. And um, I flew into the location with them on the uh, MH47s, which is the Special Operations dedicated 160th Chinooks, which can carry you know, a, a enormous payload. To give you an idea, we could only put, you know, there's about six to eight of us in the back of it. And we had to land in this you know, quite steep, you know, re-entrant ravine type area where the blades are only a couple of feet once we came into land off the ground and it really limited the aircraft's power. So anyway, so, um, you know, we come into land and there was one Chinook had landed before us. So there was six to eight guys on the ground and then we were coming in and that first Chinook was going back to pick some more guys up and you can see we're in sort of a wheel like that to get people on the ground. The problem that, you know, quickly unraveled was when we landed the first group was already in contact and they were being heavily engaged. So as we landed, we were being engaged. And what had happened that we found out in the debrief afterwards, because we were going to be on the ground, well, it was planned, you never really know what's going to happen, but we'd be on the ground a few hours. And this turned into a 36-hour ordeal. So how many of you are there in total? Six to eight in the back of one Chinook. How many Chinooks were landing with guys coming up? We could only land one at a time, and I was in the second one in. So now there's 12, 15, 16 of us or something on the ground. And we managed to land at least one other. To be honest, I can't fully recall, but at the most, two others. So there was only, at any stage, you know, maybe 20-odd of us on the ground. Yeah, in short, we faced a phenomenal force, as in hundreds, as in low hundreds, was the estimation. And there was, you know, close to 100-odd killed because we flew back in there a few days later. I didn't, but others did to do what they call BDA, the uh, damage assessment. Yeah, so what happened was where we thought was a um, few from the ISR, like, you know, so the numerous assets scanning the ground, what they thought was a couple of guys standing around like a fireplace turned out to be a huge cave complex. And you might think, well, how would this happen? Because of the altitude and the angles of, you know, mountainside, the re-entrance and et cetera, it was really hard. They, they couldn't basically look in. They could only more or less look down, if that makes sense. 
once we landed, obviously they heard us land. There's a couple that were standing around the fireplace were obviously sentries at the front of the cave complex, and they alerted the you know, hundred odd fighters that were inside this cave complex of you know what was taking place outside, and they obviously came streaming out. So yeah, it was a real baptism of fire. Certainly, uh, like I said, we're in the thick of it right from landing, and this. You know, continued on for uh, almost the day and it was extremely difficult fighting because of the altitude so when I got off the helicopter you know you normally uh, run out the back to the slight left or slight right after you know sort of moving off briskly because the adrenaline's going I, mean, I actually thought I might have been shot or something I, I just knew there was something wrong with me I didn't know what and then I quickly realized it was the altitude I couldn't breathe effectively to maintain enough oxygen to keep going at a you know aerobic slash anaerobic capacity so we're in this firefight trying to move to cover uh, and we can only do that in these sort of limited bounds one because of the terrain two because of fire and three because of the altitude you just couldn't run off to wherever you wanted to go so i actually remember taking a knee and sort of laughing you know having a chuckle at myself like how crazy everything that was happening actually was i think having a giggle and sort of that one of those first high pressure real high pressure high stakes combat scenarios is actually quite common well i mean most of us you know you've got to maintain that sense of humor i guess and it's a bit of a stress release and sometimes it might be a nervous giggle but you know it's a definite trait within most special operators that i've come across you have to have that sense of humor because otherwise you know what do you have you, know, you can't take a knee and sit there and cry <laughs> not that that you know ever ended my mind but you know like what else do you do so you sort of kind of have a laugh at the situation and quickly reassess get your situational awareness you know aligned and make that next decision and that was you know to keep bounding you know towards where the other guys were already in heavy contact but also you know you're thinking you know what are we going to do once we get there before we get there can we drill down on the tactile experience of being in a heavy contact like that bullets whizzing past your head the absolute pump of adrenaline the sights the sounds and the fear it's a surreal experience, you know, in part, some things are going in slow motion, other parts are going in fast forward, then some moments seem to freeze in time. So it's uh, it's quite surreal You're in your first sort of actual proper all-out firefight as that was, or, or, you know, contact, whatever you wish to call it. Basically, spent the next few hours trying to manoeuvre, keep some security there for that, because we could hear over the radio, well, they knew straight away we were in trouble. And because of the ISR assets, the surveillance could see the sheer numbers coming out. And all, so you can imagine back in the command centre, all this is getting spun up quite quickly because this is how you lose, you know, 15 or 20 guys and it becomes one of those, you know, books that someone survives and writes about. And we had to react quickly on the ground and they also had to react very quickly back there to get more guys on the ground, but also calculating the risk because this is when you lose, you know, a whole helicopter full of guys. You know, the fight was intense and we just kept trying to hold our ground. And I can't remember what stage it was, but when that other helicopter came in, I remember hearing it, not really looking around much, but just knowing that they were coming in, it was a bit of a relief that you knew you were getting more boots on the ground. You know, it just sort of escalated from there till it got to a point where we were all in relatively good positions, or as good as we could be, and just holding our line as they kept trying to uh, attack us. Well, we didn't have the numbers really to go forward, so we were in more of a defensive posture, I guess you could say. And then we were then became immediately and heavily dependent upon, you know, the JTACs, the air controllers to bring us in assets to, you know, regain the initiative. So, you know, when the Apaches started coming in, when other jets dropping bombs started to come in to help us out and to obviously give us that, uh, that upper hand. I mean, we'd already had those two guys that had already been shot, neither of which were, you know, died of wounds or anything, but, that, you know, they, we had them on the ground as well. Yes, yeah, so the situation was very serious, very, very serious. And how does the battle end? 
we landed you know, sometime in between midnight and 0400, I can't remember the exact time. So within a good few hours, the, the sun come up and then it sort of went on through the next day with numerous, you know, different jets and helicopters, you know, coming in with their firepower to help us out. And then I remember it was late that afternoon into the early evening, they actually got us to pull back a certain distance by then i'd moved up onto some high ground i was about five to six hundred meters away with three other guys on a really really sharp like a knife-like ridge line to the extent that on a couple of occasions i had the strop on which is the strap that's around your waist that you use to hook onto the bottom of the aircraft so you don't fly around uh, in the event of something happening with the um, helicopter and I remember trying to wrap that around you know there's one or two small trees there and or you know rocky um outcrops just trying to hold myself onto this edge and we were up there providing none of us had a sniper rifle but you'd say we were providing more sort of longer range surgical fire or you know whatever word you want to use down on that position we got ourselves into that position because we had a distinct different angle but then you know once they sort of had an idea of where that was coming from we had a lot of uh, machine gun fire and etc directed towards us but how it all ended up uh, finishing we had some bombers which were flown all the way from Diego Garcia and they came in and dropped 14 2,000 pounders on and around that cave entrance. They were dropped in two two lots of seven, so had 14,000 pounds of explosives going off on each run. Yeah, I can't, I can't describe that. When we knew it was coming in, one of the guys looked across me and he said, get down hold your mouth open there a couple of minutes out so because of the concussion effect you want your mouth open well that's what i was advised to do and I'd, I'd never experienced or been that close to that type of thing before but yeah when they went off there was a sense of relief because you're so close though there's a little bit of concern as to you're sure they know where we are like are we <laughs> are we going to get uh, you know two thousand pound dropped on us here it all went off you know relatively seamlessly I, I guess you could say that then gave us the initiative to well one there was no more activity there but the decision was made then to get us out of the area because there was a lull so while we can and and noting that we had those couple of casualties that have been there now for you know a good duration of time yeah the commander made the decision which you know, i think was definitely the right decision to get us out and then we'll reassess what we've achieved and what we haven't achieved through all the surveillance assets you know by observing that area etc over the next 24 48 hours after that all went off um you know we were through back down the edge of the mountain to where they designated the birds were going to the uh, shooks were going to come in and pick us up so we got down there obviously the casualties went out in the first um, couple of lifts and then we got ourselves out that was sort of the end of that did you find out what happened to Mr. Hakani? Irony is he got away. And it was a few years later until he, a good few years later, the task force killed him, confirmed a few years, um, yeah, a few years later in another operation because I was particularly tracking that individual because I thought I missed a, missed a pretty good opportunity because he, he was a very, very high profile and he was right up in their food chain. So it was important that he was um, killed or captured you know, as soon as possible. Just uh, jump back to when you describe the fact you're on the high ground, you've strapped yourself in and are providing that surgical fire. So we talked about in Timor that you need to be operating that top 1%. All those 1% add up. They matter all the time. You always have to be fulfilling that. Then put yourself in a high-pressure scenario like this. You've been fighting for hours and hours and hours, and you've got so many more hours ahead of you. How do you keep performing at that same peak capacity over such a sustained draining period of time at the time you're not thinking about it a lot yeah you know, i always used to say it's about the man to my left 
and the man to my right. Because if everybody has that mindset, then the man to your left and the man to your right, noting that you're to the left or right of someone, has such a higher chance of getting home. So right then and there on the ground, you're not thinking about it so much. But in further answer to your question, that's you know one of the principles where we, through the selection process, what we're looking for in an individual, when you go into the psychology of why you know, guys, as in normal soldiers, are deemed suitable for special operations through that selection process and that's where the psychology comes into play you've got to you know remain focused you've got to be unwavering and you've got to have that level of resolve and discipline that no matter what's happening around you you know what's the mission and what's what's the best thing to do next to achieve that mission and align with that or along with that i'm looking after and making sure that everyone gets home which sometimes they don't. But when you look at everything that we do and the amount of risk associated with it, generally speaking, we we get everyone home. I think then that's probably going to be the answer to my next question. But given this is just your first real heavy firefight and the first time you're actively working over a sustained period to be firing at the enemy, you're working to take life. Is that aspect of it almost just an unremarkable event for you? It's just part of the gig. Again, you're right. At that time, you don't think about it a lot. You're training, and I know I've said this earlier, and I don't want to keep repeating it, but it's, and I know a lot of other people have said it, but it, but it is dead right. If you've had really high-quality training, as we had had, that training kicks in, and that's why we train at the level that we train at. We train at such a high level, and we do things you know, so repetitively, and we put ourselves under enormous duress during you know, lots of training iterations so that when it comes to the real thing, you aren't balking, you aren't thinking too much. You're still thinking, but your actions are a lot more refined and honed that at the time you're doing what needs to be done and yeah, 99% of the time you're making the right decision. It is extremely complex and it is extremely you know, mentally demanding and takes a, um, you know, a very, very high level of honed skills to be able to do that. You know, there's a lot going on, but you can't let anything of your personal concern at that time or emotion you know, be something that starts to steer or impact on others around you. You, know, you, you need to be you know, that rock because we all feed off each other to a certain extent, in a good way, I mean. So, you know, everyone needs to be, you know, confident and assured of their ability and assured of the ability of the men to your left and right. That's what lets us do what we do. What did you make of the enemy you were fighting over in Afghanistan, the Taliban as warriors or fighters? A very uh, diverse opinion, I guess, because fortunately or unfortunately, I got to fight and encounter the highest tier, you know, right into, you know, higher echelons in Al-Qaeda leadership and they have a significant protective group normally assigned to them well versed at fighting and they're a lot better trained and equipped through to the borderline derogatory term the thugs in thongs being the lower echelon fighters sort of out in more regional areas who you know just trying to influence something regionally and normally only for self-gain and a borderline criminal activity than sort of terrorist activity so over the years, I would say the individuals that were extremely professional and very competent through to people who were, who were quite unprofessional and, and not competent fighters. You know, I always had respect for them. And I think anybody who didn't is foolish. They can be quite strong, hardy. You know, I've seen people in extreme cold weather, you know, with you know, their feet frozen, you know, fighting, you know, living out of the most inhospitable conditions the most diverse terrain you can imagine, you know, with poor weapons, poor equipment, a very, very poor diet, and they're fighting hard. So their will to fight 
or some of them, their will to fight and their resolve was um, quite high. And, you know, with, with those encounters, you developed a, um, you know, respect. When you see guys shot several times or wounded significantly, living and fighting under those conditions uh, with the poor equipment that are stated, and they will go on and will push through everything where we would throw at them. I developed a respect for them and saw some you know, unbelievable acts of mental toughness. You'd have to say courage as well. H, I'm sure there are very many, but are there any other particular standout memories or exciting incidents from that first deployment to Afghanistan? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. There was almost probably too many. There was a operation where I was in a helicopter that got shot down. So what happened after that operation is we went back, we did a few others. You'd almost go out every night and do these style of things. So where I thought this was a one-off, they become very routine. After a couple of other operations, they some elements, key people inside the task force, pulled me aside and wanted me to go across to the tier one element and work with them. And at the time that was uh, primarily filled with uh, dev group operators, being SEAL Team 6 from one of their squadrons. Yes, yeah, so I went across and started doing some uh, things with, uh, with them and fast forwarding then to a particular operation. One element did a uh, infill to a um, target area near, again near the Pakistan border where we flew out of Kandahar, which was again, we thought we had everything relatively covered as in there was nothing particularly alarming about it. You know, it was a fairly well enemy held territory. One element went in a uh, foot fill, so they did like an offset, as they call it, where, you know, we'd land away from the target and move towards the target on foot. And then um, another element would come and land, you know, when we say on the target, basically as close to the target as possible. So there's a combination of that and also some other people getting landed in, like in cordon positions in, you know, or put on key pieces of terrain so that if counter-attack came into that objective area, they would be in between us and them so we could focus on what we were doing and they would focus on, you know, whatever was coming in trying to attack us. Everything on that target went, you know, reasonably well as in we killed the persons that were identified to be there. And it was what you would call in these high-end operations reasonably uneventful. Having said that, there was a lot there was a lot going on, but, you know, in comparison. And then towards the end, we got a couple of cordon forces, got in some pretty intense firefights, engagements, but managed to hold their position and, um, and kill those enemy. So uh, we decided it was time to extract. At what stage, two Chinooks came and landed, again, pretty well on the target, as in 100 metres or so away. And they were um, side by side and, and slightly offset. Uh, so one was, you know, like about 100 feet forward of the other, if that makes sense. And as they're looking forward, I was getting on the far left one. And for no particular reason, I was the last person to get on. As I was running over towards it, just in those last seconds, almost like a cartoon character, sort of my heels skidding into the, into the dirt because this enormous amount of trace from um, some heavy machine guns started coming over the top of the helicopter from two distinct different angles. So we're basically fixed in an arc and it was coming over our, our Chinook. And at that time, the loadmaster, because he's just on the back ramp there, couldn't you know really see what was going on. So I'd sort of grabbed his shoulder, and just as I did that, he must have been getting it over his radio because I was trying to grab him to pull him around to see what was going on because you can't hear much then because the, uh, the 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 noise of the jets out of the Chinooks. So anyway, then I jumped on board and found out later because we sat there hovering for a, a period of time. It seemed like forever. It may have been 30 seconds or a minute, whereas normally you'd take straight off. And what they were doing was they were trying to coordinate the other assets that were above us to quell where that fire was going. And there was also some confusion as to why that fire happened. As in, you know, we had a uh, gunship above us and some other assets 
And in the debrief, and the debrief was quite extensive because this turned into a you know, forty or sixty million dollar operation. Yeah, what we found out in the debrief is when they did a uh, they did a handover, it's basically who was controlling those assets, and and something happened. I can't remember the details, and, and it kind of doesn't matter now. But something happened with the handover where there was a you know there was a thirty second or a minute delay in observation or coordination or communication or a combination of all the above. And like I said, we didn't know that at the time, but coming back to on the ground. So what happened was they made the decision to both take off at the same time, noting that those MH47s have got a few miniguns on each of them. You know, for the listeners, that is a weapon that produces a formidable, formidable, it's a multi-barreled machine gun and uh, it produces a formidable uh, amount of firepower. It is utterly devastating. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's best to Google it. Yeah, we'll go watch it on YouTube. <laughs> so they decided to take off together and obviously all guns on all jets just absolutely lit up. We realised straight away we were in a fair bit of trouble because we did take some small arms fire straight away. And once we realised, well, I already knew it was going on, once others realised what was going on, we also had um, pushed out some of the uh, small round glass. Oh, there were perspex pot material. Observation windows on the side, so we had operators you know, on one knee up against the side, firing out of both sides. Uh, both front gunners firing, both rear gunners firing. And uh, like I said, we still took some small arms fire. I remember then hearing a um, an explosion near us. We were up in the air now, obviously, you know, however many, maybe a couple hundred feet under full power. And um, I just remember, yeah, thinking to myself when I heard that explosion and you saw the flash through your night vision goggles. Yeah, I was, that sort of started to concern me a bit because I knew that that was uh, some sort of rocket, which I later found out to be an RPG that basically air burst just near us. And then it was shortly after that, a rocket, another one was fired and uh, it air burst near the forward left of the jet, which uh, disabled the uh, jet. And you just started to hear a uh, failure of, I honestly don't know how to describe it. It's like a screeching metallic noise. You know what it feels like when it's normally flying and you just knew straight away it wasn't under control anymore. To the extent then shortly thereafter, I knew we were I knew we were going to crash. What went through your mind at that point? When uh, it became obvious that we'd lost control, we still had power and the discs were still going. You knew we had no control by the way the, the Chinook was moving and there was a drop in altitude. There started to be a drop in altitude, that, which was not normal. We knew they wouldn't be trying to land. But what were you thinking and feeling as this was happening and you realised you're going down and not in a controlled way? I took a knee and I uh, grabbed onto a piece of strapping on the, on the side of the Chinook. And uh, I said a couple of, I don't really believe in uh, God, but it was kind of funny. I, I said a couple of prayers, mainly to family. And, um, and then for some funny reason, I pulled out a Spyderco rescue knife in a pocket near my calf. You know, we carried those knives specifically when you get tangled up inside a, or inside anything to be able to cut yourself out. Yeah, and for some reason, when I look back, it was probably kind of silly, but I pulled that out and I had that in my hand, ready to either cut my strop or cut anything if I survived the landing. Yeah, I just basically held on because I, I knew then, like, you know, this is happening really fast that, you know, we're about to crash, so you're just uh, waiting to hit the ground. And, um, you know, all these things are running through your mind. I'm, you know, I was near the back. I thought, okay, that's good. Well, maybe, um, but, you know, are we going to land and burst into flames? You know, will I be able to get out? You know, I was looking around my goals to see what others were doing and who was, you know, whether anyone was wounded or anything. And then miraculously, we had a very hard, very, very hard landing. But 
if you can imagine a Chinook flying through the air and it's sort of twisting from side to side and left to right and um, seconds before we crashed, it just happened to be at that precise position that it would land at, as in it wasn't violently swinging to the left, right or up or back. So it had just swung back into that position. And um, that, you know, probably saved our lives and uh, will certainly saved a lot of injuries or whatever. It's hard to speculate. But, yeah, so there was that crashing into the ground, which sort of threw us, you know, forward and into the deck. And then I just, you know, remember however long it was, a split second, and went, I just remember saying to myself, well, you're alive now. Like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, as in, get up, like, get moving. I've got a quick release on the strop. I remember pulling that and moving out the back of the jet. And then just before I was off the back ramp, I thought, hang on. And I sort of spun around to go back in because I thought, well, maybe there's guys in there that are, um, you know, trapped or hurt or whatever and can't get out. So before I was out, I'd already turned to go back in to help or assist get anyone off. Miraculously, there's no significant injuries. Like I said, got everyone out. And we're then only on the ground and then including the crew. And um, basically, as soon as we were, we were out and sort of, I know it's hard to explain, you know, you're a little bit in shock, but you know you need to keep moving and it hasn't stopped yet. So we straight away put out security and myself and another senior guy there more or less took charge. All that deep, methodical, relentless training is overpowering the sensations of shock and the normal instinct to shut down and recover. Your training was kicking in and that's what's saving you here. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It was, yeah, like I said, it was instinctive. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, you know, there's a couple of pauses here and there. But you're just trying to collect yourself and get your situational awareness of the enormity of what's just happened. Only seconds ago, braced yourself mentally that, you know, you're about to die. You've accepted that. And in that short term, I'd, I'd come to terms with that. Um, so next minute, I'm alive. Um, and, you know, you're now, okay, <laughs> what are you going to do now? So, like I said, myself and another senior guy, I refer to as Charlie. Uh, me and Charlie quickly took hold of, you know, control and pushed some guys out, just, you know, double-checked everyone's okay and got some security out. And then uh, moments later, we were under attack. That uh, element that was firing on us had obviously, you know, seen and noted where we'd crashed, which was their objective. So they were prepared and hoping for that and ready to get to that crash site. Yeah, we're then under um, different sporadic engagement from different areas. You know, it just doesn't stop. It's not like, um, you know, that occurs and you're like, okay, that's good. And, you know, you knock off now. It just keeps going on and on and on. It's very close to first light now. So, you know, that puts us at more of an even playing field with the enemy, as in we're, we're a lot more of a superior force of a nighttime with our night vision devices and then thermal imagery and, and our training and everything else. So things were about to even up a little bit, and that was alarming. The second Chinook against orders which became a uh, friction point in the debrief. But I can remember him standing up to the uh, general in command of the task force who said that he shouldn't have done what he did. He still had a Chinook uh, full of troops and he could have been shot down as well. But what he did and what he stood up the debrief and said, I had guys on the ground. I wasn't Winchestered, which is the uh, term used when you're out of ammunition or bingoed is a term used for out of fuel. He said, I was neither Winchester or bingo, so I wasn't going to leave him behind until the assets, as in some actual firepower, got there to help us. So he did circles around us, leaning over on either side with the miniguns, uh, you know, putting effective fire onto uh, any enemy you know, in the area and anyone moving towards us until he was out of ammunition and was close to out of fuel. And then he pulled off station. And then in a extremely rare, very, very rare occurrence, the gunship that was above us, 
which was due to go off station because now it's coming up too light. So basically they have a, um, a uh, rule or a policy that they don't fly in daytime. They're equipped with 20mm cannons, you know, 105 cannons, more miniguns and various other things and, and lots of surveillance devices so they can see and fire all those systems accurately. They stayed on station until they were fully expended of all ammunition and also low on fuel. And at that stage, you know, most of the fighting had stopped because we'd put so much firepower down upon all the enemy elements. And then there was a, I remember being a, a bit of a quell in, um, in everything for however long that was. I don't think it was long, maybe half an hour, an hour. And um, what was happening in that time was they were working out, you know, what to do first and foremost with us, as in how to get us out of there noting it was now daytime and we're in the middle of nowhere and anything that was in the area would be coming to that crash and also what to do with the uh, Chinook because they're you know, such a critical asset and like I said, they're you know, conservatively worth about $40 million, those ones in particular, I think. But however much they're worth, they're worth a lot of money is the point. And the general um, made the decision you know, after recent instance, because uh, it was only in 2005, so only the year before that they'd had another serious incident which the movie Lone Survivor is uh, strongly based off. So they didn't want that similar incident or, you know, the other incidents when you go into a few more years before that of, you know, Chinooks getting shot down up in the Tora Bore, et cetera, with the same task force. So they're very cognizant of that and uh, he made the decision to disregard the Chinook and to get the men out. After a period of time, we got everyone together and moved several hundred metres to another location where we are told to go where that uh, Chinook was going to come in and pick us up and then... It was the same Schnook that had gone back, rearmed, refueled, and uh, they came in. And um, just before they came in, three or four minutes before they came in, we started receiving heavy fire again. I've never, ever, ever seen before or since then, with all the flying I've done, which is a lot, a Chinook manoeuvre like this Chinook did. I remember him coming in so fast and so low and then basically flaring and spinning that Chinook around like literally what appeared to be on a dime. And then it just dropped, not even 100 feet from us. And there was a lot of, you know, what we call cars, close air support going off around us. Other assets, some you can't even see, that are engaging positions around us to ensure, to get us out and to ensure that that Chinook doesn't get shot down. In short, we all got ourselves on board there and it took off. I remember landing back at Kandahar where a couple of key elements of the task force had moved up to meet us when we got off. And we got off and we counted the holes in that. Jet. There was 37 strikes of numerous uh, weapon systems on the jet that pulled us out. And I remember coming off that back ramp, just, yeah, I can't describe the feeling. Yeah, trying to explain that feeling, stepping off that back ramp. Obviously, we are all sort of laughs and giggles then and arm in arm and, yeah, doing some high fives and lots of fist pumps and good games on the ass because it was quite remarkable that, you know, no one was killed or we didn't lose a second, second Chinook. To step back a little bit, what happened as we extracted, they coordinated or, or synchronised the destruction of that Chinook. So it was bombed so that nothing could be taken from it or it couldn't be utilised. So as we took off, they uh, put airstrikes um, or affected airstrikes onto that disabled jet as opposed to recovering it. That was a big decision by the general. To put a little bit of humour on it all, as I stepped off, I developed quite a good relationship with the Sergeant Major of the task force, a few cigars and some scotch on a few nights and he was a real gentleman and a very very experienced senior tier one operator i remember him standing there he, a few of them flew up from uh, bagram to greet us because the event was that significant and they had a dedicated c-17 there so we could just roll everyone and everything on it and get back down to uh, bagram to reset 
because, you know, in that task force, things just continue to go on at the rapid rate. But anyway, he came up to me, a big smile on his face, and uh, he's like, H, first helicopter crash? And I was like, sort of sitting there with a laugh, I was, I was like, yeah, yeah, it was my first helicopter crash. He goes, damn, I've been in three. And um, apparently I think he's you know, one of the only guys to live across the command in the U.S. or maybe all of the U.S., I don't know, that's uh, lived through three helicopter crashes, one in training, one in Iraq and one in um, Afghanistan, I think. But whatever it was, yeah, so that was quite, quite a moment. I said, yeah, that was my first and I hope it's my last. As in, I, I don't <laughs> I don't want to get it on a pissing on trees competition as to who has the most helicopter crashes in their career. I'm sort of happy to live through one. One of the other, I think, just something else I'd like to mention or talk about briefly, you know, one of the fundamental differences with, the, you know, when you're looking death in the face, so to speak, and how it affects you is when we go out on a dangerous mission, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's really at the forefront. It was never at the forefront of my mind, and I doubt it is at the forefront of many operators' minds. You just can't be thinking like that. You're, you're mission-focused, and you're, um, like I said, it's about doing the mission, thinking of the specifics of that mission and the brothers to your left and right. And when someone gets shot, even though you might be in a firefight, I mean shot and killed, you don't see it coming. There's no lead-up to it. You know, it's it's instant, or in the occasions it's instant. But what... Um, I guess what you know affected me was that thinking you're going to die and you're waiting to die and then you don't, as opposed to the instantaneous of it. So when we were you know just before the actual crash, you know those moments leading into that, yeah, you know they, they left a mark on me. Is that mark still affecting you today? To be honest and about it all and inward, I'd have to say yes. I think that along with many other incidents leave a mark on you. You know, it's, it's how you deal with them. You know, I've, I've been through some, uh, what I've described as very, very average times. It's a cocktail of trauma and that stands out as a key ingredient, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. After I left the military for the first few years, I had little bouts of uh, what you describe as being unwell, as that's, you know, depression or the way that you're acting. And you know, I made some very poor choices as well. I'm man enough to admit very, very poor choices in, in my actions, you know, with family and friends the treatment of self. You know, there's a thing called survivor's guilt. There's the whole, when you leave that brotherhood, you know, your life becomes a bit vacant. And then also the transition into civilian life for people who have served, especially doing what we've done. And then when I've done it for so long, you know, the easiest way I can describe it is so many components of normal day-to-day life are just absolutely boring. So you're chasing this fix that you used to have and in the chase of it and for it. That's where a lot of guys can go down the wrong road, as I did. H has so many more combat stories to tell from his subsequent deployments to the Middle East. We will get him back on the podcast in the future to tell them. In the meantime, we still have one more podcast with H for you to hear. Join us tomorrow for the final instalment of H's story. Discharging from the commandos, reflecting on his time in uniform, and his life after the war. Here is a short clip from tomorrow's episode. It was noted straight away by family that there's a significant change in me. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please let us know. Jump onto Apple Podcasts or your app of choice and rate us five stars, and even leave a review. It helps us climb the charts, which gets these stories into the ears of more people. You can also post about it on your social media and tell your friends. Good old word of mouth. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>